we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 65. And Carrie's still alive. Barely. <laughs> I'm hanging on by a pick line. <laughs> <laughs> True story. Yeah, apparently this arthritis shit we told you all about last time, kind of a big deal. Mm-hmm. Yep. Luckily, I work in an orthopedic surgeon clinic thingy. So I ran upstairs. One of the doctors aspirated some fluid out of it and was like, mm, yep, we're going to surgery tomorrow. See you at one thirty. And so he washed it out in surgery, and now I have a an IV that stays in. It's called Picline. Stays in my arm until the IV antibiotics are done. Yeah, like so, eight m- weeks. Mm-hmm, maybe eight weeks. Whew, it's been a whirlwind of a couple of weeks, y'all. In other news, I had a really weird experience. So Monday, I went to visit my nanny, who's my grandmother, And she lives in an assisted living facility. She has Alzheimer's. Well, I don't deal well with, like, hospital smells and all of that. I just have bad memories. I mean, who has good memories in a hospital? I mean, births. I mean, who has good memories in a hospital? (laughs) If you work there. So, I get there. It's after hours, I guess. And so, it was just weird how I had to do it. They took me in a weird way. And she's like, when you leave, you have to go all the way around the building to get out. I'm like, okay, cool. I visit, do my thing while I'm leaving. And it was like the never-ending hall. You know, like in a horror movie where it's just like a hospital hallway will just like keep going and going and going. That's how it was. And I would turn a corner and more. Well, I had the weirdest thing where I was like, oh, my God. Something weird's going to happen. Like, I started walking, like, speed walking. That is not normal for me. Unless they put out new fried rice at a buffet. (laughs) Well, this older man, he looked like he would be the person that you forget that you pass in a scary movie. And then later, he's the killer. Mm -hmm. Well, he's in a wheelchair. And he kind of, like, rolls back when I'm going there and I have to pass him. He's like a fucking troll. And I'm like, awkward. So, like, I, like, think thin and squeeze behind him. Well, then he starts following me with his, like, and I hear it. And I'm like, what the fuck? And so you hear my flip-flops, because, of course, I had flip-flops on. So it's like, plop, plop, plop. And it's like, roll, roll, roll. And I was like, what the fuck? (laughs) What wheelchair sounds like, roll, roll, roll? Well, I mean, (laughs) actually, it was more like, because. That's how fast you were walking. (laughs) I mean, let's just be honest. Let's just be honest. That was my back hurting. <laughs> well, okay. So, what scared me even more, because uh, what what is he going to do? I don't know. But if y'all have ever watched Return to Oz, the wheelers, they are what nightmares are made of. And so, wheelchairs like that anyway, like the sound, like coming up behind me, all I could think about, he was a wheeler. Mm-mm-mm. I couldn't get out of the door. I was texting them. I like I p- did a picture and I was like, does this let me out? Y'all, it was a mess. But I was like, I almost, like, almost had ventilated <laughs> thinking this man was going to come after me. Apparently, he liked big girls. That poor guy. Meanwhile, he was probably like, where's this bitch going? <laughs> He's probably like, get off my hallway. <laughs> I would love to know what he was really doing. Like, he probably was going down to see his girlfriend and it just happened to be the way you were walking. <laughs> and you're like, I'm speed walking. He's like, why is this bitch walking so slow? <laughs> He's probably like... Is something wrong with her? She's really breathing heavy. Let me <laughs> let me follow her in case she passes out. <laughs> oh my god. Anyway, some other good stuff happened. We got new Patreoners. Yes. Welcome Donna S from Missouri. Yes. 
awesome name, Rachel L. from California. Thank y'all, as we always say, so freaking much. We cannot even express it enough how much we appreciate y'all being part of the Patreon. We hope that y'all love the bonus content that you get with the episodes and the bloopers and the stickers and the mail and all the things. Yes. So welcome to the Creepinati. Yes, and we still have our special stickers, so come on, peeps. It's awesome. It's a picture of me. And, of course, my sticker is, like, the biggest sticker. Well, you got the biggest head. Biggest head. (laughs) Big. Huge. All right. You ready to get going? Yes, ma'am. All right. This week, I am going to talk about the murder of Mabel Monaghan. Mmm. So, I want you to picture it. March 9th, 1953. Mabel Monaghan lived in Burbank, California. She was 64 years old. Living her best life, doing her thing. She was frail, but she was living alone. Two days later, her gardener comes over to do her lawn. And he's like, damn, why is her door open? And so, like, he opens the front door because it was ajar. And he was like, shit, this place has been ransacked. Oh, fuck. So, he calls police because he, you know, notices that the house is in disarray. And they find Mabel's body... With blood spatter all down the hallway, in the closet. She was laying with her hands bound behind her back. Oh, gosh. And she had been hit over the head multiple times and strangled with a piece of cloth. Oh, gosh. The police did notice, though, that her purse, it had $474 in it. And there was some there was some jewelry that was all left behind. And so they're like, what the fuck? Why is all this left behind? Yeah. But that there were, like, drawers that had been emptied, places where the carpet had been pulled up. Like, thoroughly searched the house, whoever it was. Yeah, they were looking for something. Yeah, but clearly not the $400 in her, in her purse. Yeah. And, you know, attacks on anybody is awful. But there's just something about an attack on the elderly that just chaps my ass yeah i think i may have said this but she's 64 she you know she's partially disabled but she was living by herself so the police were like who the fuck could have done this right well the newspapers are all over this story because again this older lady in her house by herself brutally murdered for no fucking reason that they can find yeah the newspapers were calling it a fiendish slaying and saying like this has to be related to some sort of like the the underbelly of society you know like there's yeah no well her former son-in-law his name was luther b shearer he went by tutor he was like a big gambler in las vegas and oh god kind of about underbelly mm-hmm, you know in the more kind of seedy part of it well hell during this time all of it was seedy true well, the coroner's report came back that it, she actually died from asphyxiation. Gosh. And so her daughter was like, look, I will put up a $5,000 reward for anybody that comes forward and, it, you know, it's information leading to her arrest. Well, that's all that one kid needed to be like, um, I, I got some information. Uh-huh. Give me my five Gs. Well, his name was Baxter Shorter. And... He was a an ex-convict with a lot of different property crimes, but like not non-violent offenses. Well, on March 31st is when he made his made a statement to police and he said that the motive for the crime was 100% robbery and that one of his partners in the crime was Tudor Shearer, the former son-in-law. Mm-hmm. 
And according to Tudor, she had, like, hidden throughout the house hundreds of thousands of dollars. Like, oh, okay. 100000 here, 100000 under that carpet, 100000 there. Yeah. Which is why they weren't giving two shits about the $500 in her purse. Right. Because I like, mean, but let's just be honest. I, I would take that, too. I know. Also, is his name T-U-D-O-R or yeah. T-O-O-T-E-R? T-U-D-O-R. Okay, okay. Tutor. Not tutor. Well, I was like, I mean... He tooted. Yeah. Not that. I was like, okay. Either he is she-she or... Wee-wee. <laughs> <laughs> so the police were like, okay... Who who are your accomplices then? And he said the names Emmett, John, and Jack, and then told them, like, gave everybody's description, and then he said, and then there was a woman. So police are like, okay, John Santo and Emmett Perkins. All right, we we know them, you know, long-time convicts, been in and out of jail, you know, yeah. that kind of old-school convict. Mm-hmm. So he had the usual suspects. Mm-hmm. And they, both of them had been convicted of Weapons violations, kidnapping, robbery, all the other stuff. Shit. And together, they were actually responsible for a quadruple homicide in 1952. And so, they they were actually tried for that later and, like, found guilty and stuff. So, bad dudes. Like, not, not somebody you want to be dicking around with. Yeah. So, the police do some more digging, and they realize that John Santos and Emmett Perkins, they have a good friend named John True, they also find that Emmett Perkins, his girlfriend, her name is Barbara Graham, and she looks just like the description that Shorter had given at the beginning. So the police bring in John True, and they're like, you know, questioning him over and over and over again. He's like, I don't know what the fuck y'all are talking about. So the police didn't have anything to hold him on, so they had to let him go. On April 13th, though, the news broke from the San Francisco Examiner, that a suspect was being held for Monahan's murder. And it also kind of hinted, I guess, that there were other suspects that were being identified and looked at. Hmm. Well, as soon as that happened, Baxter Shorter, who was the, the original one that was like, okay, I see your 5,000. Here's my confession. <laughs> yeah. He was kidnapped from his house at gunpoint. Oh, fuck. And on April 14th, was murdered. Oh, fuck. And so, they the police believe that it was in retaliation for his confession. Mm-hmm. I wonder if he had got the $5,000 yet or not. I don't know. Well, Shorter's kidnapping made True be like, Ooh, hey, hey, guys, policeman, if you give me immunity, I'll tell you everything. And so, they were like, absolutely. Yeah. So, True was like, even though he was friends with Santos, Perkins, and Graham, and Shorter, he didn't have a criminal background like all of the rest of them did. And so, the police were like, and the prosecutors were like, yeah, we'd actually rather, I mean, sucks that he died, but uh, yeah, we'll take you. Because, yeah. <laughs> you know, he didn't, it, there, there was really, the only thing he had to gain from it was his immunity. Like, it wasn't like yeah. a, I don't know. I mean, which is big enough. I'm not. Oh, you know, for sure. Which might be how he had no sordid past. True. So, according to the statement that they had gotten from Shorter before he died, and True, this is basically what they said. And their statements were pretty on point with one another. They said that Barbara Graham was the first person to make contact. 
she went up to the house and she was like, I'm having some car trouble. Like, can I come in? Can I use your phone? Yada, yada, yada. And then this is basically their account from there. True went into the house after Graham, Perkins, and Santo. A few minutes later, Shorter came in. He was the last one. Shorter said that when he walked in, he saw True holding Mabel Monahan's head down on the rug and that she had already been beaten horribly. Oh, gosh. Then he said that Barbara Graham said, go on and knock her out. And Perkins hit Monahan in the temple with the gun. And then Santos and Perkins tied her up, dragged her into the hall closet, and then started looking for other stuff in the house. But they said that Tudor Shearer, the guy who told them where all the money was to mm-hmm. go find... The brother-in-law. Okay. Mm-hmm. No. Ex-son-in-law. Yeah. Said that they couldn't find any of the money or anything of value, and so they left empty-handed. <laughs> God. Don't kill someone over someone else's, like, urban legend kind of mm-hmm. information, you know? I wonder how that story got passed down that she had so much money. I don't... There's no telling. Mm-hmm. Also, don't broadcast if you have money hidden around because people do crazy stuff for money. It's like a Klondike bar mm-hmm. and just don't be like, I got nothing. Well, the police found this other guy named William Upshaw, you know, in case y'all didn't have enough names oh, that y'all were trying God. to remember. Well, Upshaw said that that before the robbery, Santo had come to Upshaw and like, hey, this is what we're doing, you want in? And then he was like, yeah, 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 I'm in. And then, like, the night before, he was like, I can't do this. I'm backing out. And then he actually went on to testify that in their first, like, in their meeting when they were deciding to, to, you know, to do it, that it was Santo, Perkins, Shorter, and Graham, and they, and him, and they all did a drive past Mabel Monahan's. So, and this was, you know, preparation. So, police made their moves very quickly because they had already lost one witnessed into you know to the whatever you know what they think was a murder for his confession yeah i mean they can't prove it but stands to reason yeah the the newspapers were just like kind of like sensationalizing it but not like okay they said that jack santo was the hottest suspect and that the puncture marks on barbara graham's arms apparently from using narcotics and that they the the three suspects were found, quote, in various stages of undress. And they just were trying to make it like this sexualizing it and it being like this, like, huge thing. Yeah. So they mean hottest, like, sexiest. Okay. Okay. So, of course, you know, we're, it's like 1953. And so everybody's like, who is Barbara Graham? She had a very troubled childhood. You know, she's quoted saying that her mom never cared whether I lived or died as long as I didn't bother her. Oh, my god! Which is horrible. Yes. Their dad left them when they were young. She was the oldest of three kids. Their dad left them when they were young. Their mom had spent time in a female reformatory. She had multiple juvenile arrests, and she was sent to, like, like homes for girls. And this was interesting. One of the juvenile court reports from 1937 describes her mother's conduct as, quote, questionable, tagging her as a poor moral influence on her daughter. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, Barbara Graham ran away from home 1936, but they ended up locating her, and so she went, she was classified as a, quote, wayward girl on the grounds of her immorality. 
I almost said, when you said like a home for teenage girls or whatever, mm-hmm. I almost said wayward women. Yes. And because, you know, she admitted that she had multiple sex partners. And, of course, being a runaway, she got sent to this place called the Covenant of Good Shepherd, which she ran away from there. Lots of back and forth of schools for her poor conduct where she would run away. Finally, in January of 1942, like, she was released from her parole. Her parole officer was like, she is impossible to supervise. Well, that means go back to jail. (laughs) You know, she made her money with lots of different types of jobs. Like, she was a cocktail waitress, a hotel clerk, a manager at a, quote, call house, a brothel. Mm. They called her a seagull because, apparently, you know, we're in around Man Diego, you know, where all the Navy bases are you never heard it called man diego no i no yeah it's like where women who want to be with sailors go because there's like the men to women ratio is like two to one Mm. so it's like everybody getting laid no (laughs) (laughs) well i knew that like in new york and stuff they would have fleet week yeah well this whole your whole life is fleet week so they call they call them a seagull that you know hang out to meet with the navy men barbara graham Sometimes she would say that she worked as a sex worker. Sometimes she would, like, vehemently deny it. Like, absolutely not. So, it just aggravates me that, like, a lot of the articles are, like, her moral, like, questionable, her morality and all this stuff. Like, fuck y'all. You don't know her life. She was married four different times. She had three kids. She had been arrested a few times for, like, petty theft type things. Mm -hmm. For being a sex worker, vagrancy. She was charged with perjury one time for providing a false alibi for this guy. So, like I said, the media ate this shit up because it's this woman with a sordid past, and she's beautiful. Like, Mm. Barbara Graham was beautiful. And so it just added to, I mean, you know, exactly what the media would do now. Yeah. I was going to say, it's so crazy that it was back then, and it sounds like it would be mm -hmm. in Esquire and all of the shit today. Yeah, we've learned nothing from our shit. I mean... You know, they posted all that stuff about... Because I firmly believe that guy was killed for his confession. And it got that guy killed. Uh-huh. You know? So, it's like, where do you draw the line between freedom of the press and getting somebody killed? You know? Yeah. But she had names. They called her Bloody Babs. They would talk about how she was, like, this icy blonde with an icy calm with, like, stony attachments. Like, they just really villainized her in her responses to things. Yeah. There was this one study that, like, went back to look at the case, and it talked about that there are five daily newspapers in the Los Angeles area, and that not one of them covered this story in any type of objective measure at all. He found that there were three things that they did. They always put an emphasis on her appearance. Like, they would talk about that she's all the things. She's beautiful. She's blind. She's this, blah. Automatically made the assumption that she was guilty. And always focused on, like, the more lurid aspects of her life. So, Barbara Graham didn't stand a chance from the jump. Yeah. You know, and it just, again, like, they would say there were all these different ways that they would describe her hair color, her clothes, the shoes that she wore, literally, quote, shapely thighs. Like, they weren't saying shit about her male co-defendants like that. Not shit about them. Well, they did say that guy was hottest, right? Yeah. Okay. So, one. (laughs) but it was like literally every article about it something mentioned her reddish blonde hair her bottle blonde her 
brown hair, her blonde hair, her red hair, her golden hair. How did she have all these different color hairs? Mm-hmm. I think it was just how they were describing her. Like, I don't think she was like, okay, let me dye it now. No, I know, but like... I don't know, it was black and white back then, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, uh, what? She got blasted in the media because either she was too stoic or she was trying to garnish sympathy because, like, they had some photographs released with her with her youngest son. They would talk about how she's stoic like that because she was unfaithful to her husband at the time because she was dating Perkins, but she was married. Well, while she was in jail, Barbara Graham, who identified as bisexual, she had an intimate relationship with another prisoner. Her name was Donna Prowl. Okay. That's three Donnas today. I know. I know. This um, is going to be the best episode ever. Okay. Well, so Donna Prowl, she was serving a short sentence for vehicular manslaughter when Donna Prowl was approached by law enforcement to make a deal to reduce her time if they could, if she could get Barbara Graham to confess. I mean, she's in prison or awaiting her trial. Yes. Okay. So, just like they told her to, Donna goes up to Barbara and is like, I give you, you know, I can give you an alibi. You know, a friend of mine will do it just for $500. So, of course, she's like desperate as fuck. And she's like, yes, yeah. absolutely. Here's $500. Well, of course, it was an undercover police officer. And all of the conversations were taped. They talked about that they would be using like a, a hotel. They were together for this as the alibi. You know, they working all of that out. However, though, on the tape, Barbara did make a couple of statements that they were like, what? Because when she, when she talked about Shorter, she said, he's been done away with. And remember, he's the one that got killed. Mm-hmm. And then as far as for the, her needing an alibi, she says, without you as an alibi, I'm doomed to the gas chamber. And that the date of the murder early the, was early in the morning of the 10th rather than the evening of the 9th. Mm. And so how, and she also puts herself with Larry, Moe, and Curly <laughs> when everything happened. Well, they all pled not guilty. They went to their trials, lasted five weeks. The jury deliberated for less than five hours and returned guilty verdicts for all of them. So Barbara Graham, Santo, and Perkins were all sentenced to death via the gas chamber. Mm. There was some back and forth in the courts about appeals or not. But on June 2nd of 1955, all three of them were executed via the gas chamber. She died at um, 11.42 a.m., and they were both executed at, like, 2.30 the same day. This case brings up a lot that we've talked about in all of the cases of the media's portrayal of it, and does it offer them a fair trial, and, you know, it was all about her and her appearance and this and that instead of the facts. And so, I mean, there are people that still today say she was innocent and she should never have been convicted, but... Well, how did she know all this stuff if she yeah. was innocent? Yeah. I mean, I don't think she was the ring leader. No, definitely she wasn't the mastermind by, behind it, but it just, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. So that's all. That took a turn. Mm-hmm. And what the fuck? Poor old lady. Can Mabel? I remember her name? Yeah, her. She's the victim here. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't tell you a whole lot about her. I know. You know, like, she didn't even get to have justice i feel like you know what i mean in that regard it's like she did but look at this bombshell mm -hmm. 
You know what I mean? It's like, well, fuck. Which is usually the case. We oh, know, for sure. We know all about the murderer and not the murderee. Victim? Mm-hmm. Those two. Not a very happy story. It's not. <laughs> well, and also, so they both died at 2.30, the guys, but she was done first. She was supposed to have died at, like, 10, and then they did a stay until, like, 11, and then they did a stay till like, the... 1123 she's like just kill me like i've been ready since yeah. 10 like this is torture if you're not gonna stop the execution just kill me you know just, don't put it back 10 minutes does she get a last meal every time that she gets a stay okay well it's only 10 minutes so probably not hey i can eat a candy bar in 10 minutes okay i could eat a meal i mean duh <laughs> could do well depressing story meets <laughs> another depressing story lovely All right, New York City is a place we all know. We all dream of going at some point in our lives. But there's a place in Greenwich Village, also known as West Village, near the famous Washington Square. It is number 14, West 10th Street, and it's known as the House of Death. And so, of course, that's what I'm talking about today. Dun-dun-dun. It's a beautiful Greek revivalist brownstone built in 1856. It was the home to many of the city's shishi elite peeps. The wife of James Borman Johnson, he was the founder of the Metro Underground Railroad and the Broadway Underground Railroad. After he died, she moved her and her daughters to this house in the 1880s. So that was just like the beginning of... The elite staying here. Mm -hmm. Which, brownstones are beautiful. Yes, they are. All right. In 1897, Fred H. Andrew became its new owner. He was a famous cyclist. And the bad luck at this home seems to begin when he stayed there. I couldn't really find a lot of reports about this. But they say in a moment of, quote, reckless bicycle riding... It caused him to collide with an eight-year-old boy, and the boy broke both of his legs, and Andrew was arrested. Oh, fuck. Yeah. They say that the house was cursed after this. Enter Samuel Clemens, better known as Mark Twain. He lived in various places all over New York City when he was an adult, but he repeatedly said that this residence, 14 West 10th Street, was his favorite that he ever lived Hmm. he moved in 1900 and that was three years after fred andrews left slash went to a new residence called jail that's crazy like what was he doing cycling to you know what i mean like yeah if it was just an accident like what was he doing i need more details (laughs) i know i I couldn't find anything because most of y'all know this i know carrie wouldn't Fred Andrew comes up for Riverdale. That was R.I.P. Luke Perry's character. And so everything was that. And I'm like, no. And so then I'd put like, you know, other keywords in and Mm -hmm. it was no. (laughs) So I I have no idea. Dang. All right. If you visit here, you'll see a small Browns plaque in Mark Twain's honor. Because, of course, they're going to capitalize on this. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would. When he moved in, it already had a reputation of being haunted, cursed, all of the above. But he 
was a skeptic through and through, a.k.a. Carrie, and kind of mocked the idea of ghosts. Here's a experience, but I do not believe this was a ghost either, but okay, here it goes. They say that he was laying in bed, and he saw a piece of kindling wood moving across the floor. And so he pulled out his pistol and goes, pew, 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 shot it, and it obviously stopped. And then there were a few drops of blood, but he never saw an animal, never saw anything scurry away, whatever. But he said, no, it was a rat, whatever. It was not a ghost. But other people say that it was supernatural. But it left blood. Not a lot. It was like three drops, but still blood. But also, mice are freaking strong. And mice are freaking fast. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know. Like, I feel like that is not supernatural. He only stayed there for a year, but apparently it made a lasting impression on him. Zoomed to 1937, the brownstone was turned into 10 apartments. In 1957, Jan and Fred Bartell, they moved to the top floor apartment. Jan was an off-Broadway actress. Her husband was a restaurateur. He was seldom home. His work, you know, was always coming first, working late, working weekends. And they say that Fred was kind of difficult in their relationship because he was a World War II vet. He suffered PTSD and was prone to outburst. But also, by all accounts, Jan was rather difficult too. She was spoiled. She was neurotic and suffered from clinical depression. They just had their issues. And of course, I mean, let's just, you know, Money can't buy happiness. It can buy a home that's haunted. All right. Well, that top floor apartment that they're in, it was originally the servants' quarters. Shortly after moving in, she discovered that she had a touch of psychic ability. Okay. (laughs) Which made her anxiety even more and, like, her idiosyncrasies or how do you say that i don't know i can never say that right idiosyncrasies i don't know i never can say it right yeah those yeah but you know it just made it more everything Mm -hmm. well shortly after moving in she heard footsteps and most of the time it was the sound of footsteps following her up the stairs nope then it felt like someone was touching her It would be a brush against the back of her neck. Even when her hair was tied up, nothing, you know, no, like, tendrils were, you know, curled down or anything like that. I mean, as long as they're playing with my hair, though. I feel like I'd be cool with it. (laughs) And then a strange, rotting smell would come and go. And she said that it was like a wispy smoke where, it, you know, it would just kind of waft through but then quickly leave to dissipate, whatever. I'm throwing out new words here, and I don't know if they're landing. (laughs) Well, things got darker. Shadows that, of course, were darker than dark. We hear that every time, and it always creeps me out. Yes, me too. She became aware of a huge dark shadow that she said it was in the shape of a man, 
and it would follow her around through the apartment, and she called him a monstrous moving shadow. And so she always felt suffocated and just his presence was overbearing. One time she reported that she saw the figure of this man in the hallway and she reached out to touch him. And when she felt this figure, this is what she described. She said it was a substance without substance, chilly, damp, diaphanous as marsh mist or a cloud of ether. I could feel my fingers freeze at the tips. They were numb and yet they tingled. In a split second between contact and recoil, the scent came. Fragile and languorous and sweet. Unbearably, cloyingly sweet. Which is, you know, like, all of that to say, she touched it like a cloudy mist. Touched it, ooh, a chill, like we know, drop of temperature. And then she smelled a sickening sweet smell. You know, kind of putrid, but sweet. Whatever. There you go. I feel like she just typed that shit up in Word and did right-click thesaurus for all of those oh, words. Oh, for sure. I feel like that, too. I mean, Carrie had to look up most of those words. I'm not even going to lie. But I also feel like some of them were redundant. Yes! That's so why I'm like, she just used the thesaurus. Who is she, me? Definitely me in high school. <laughs> oh, for... Oh, God. I mean, high school was scary in itself. Let's get back to old Jan. So, again, she would smell things that were rotten, but she wouldn't know where they would come from. And she she had what she thought was a vision of an aborted baby. Hmm. And she was like, okay, is the smell coming from this aborted baby that I'm envisioning? Like, is it trying to tell me something? You know, Inspector Gadget. She'd also find that furniture had been moved around, and she would hear sounds of breaking glass. And the sounds of breaking glass would almost chase her around the apartment. It would get, like, her nerves riled up. So she'd leave to another room. And in that room, another time it would, you know, sound. And so she just couldn't get to a quiet place. So Jan and her husband, Fred, started taking notes about what they were feeling. And she began to write a book about the home. One of their dogs mysteriously and suddenly died for no apparent reason. And she said that was the first, like, untimely death. And then it was quickly followed by numerous other residents, either through suicide or some odd circumstance. And, I mean, these are her claiming, you know, whatever. And then she said that her other dogs would constantly sit there and growl at the corner or at this one empty chair. One night, she, again, was dreaming and all of this and, like, how the aborted baby vision had come to her. She got a strong feeling that Mark Twain was still there. So, one day, she talked to the superintendent and she was like, hey, you know, kind of making notes. Have you noticed anything strange about the building, you know? And so, the super was like, okay, the super before me had some stories to tell. And so, she's like... What kind of stories? So the super said, yeah, about that fella Clemens. And so she pressed and was like, has he been seen here? Because again, like her spidey senses have been going off. And so she's getting confirmation now. Yeah. And he said that, yes, Clemens had been seen there twice that he knew of by two different people. On the ground floor back in the 1930s, a mother and daughter 
and a young widow woman were sharing the apartment. The mother, she comes into the living room one evening before the lamps are lit, and she sees a man with white hair, all wild-like, and he's sitting in a chair looking out the window, and she's like, who the fuck are you? I mean, yeah. you know. Who the fuck is goeth there? Oh, my God. <laughs> yes. That. Exactly that. Laboriously. <laughs> And he says, my name is Clemens, and I got problems here I got to settle. Oh, shit. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's why his ghost is haunting here, because he only lived there for one year. Yeah. So after learning this and kind of confirming everything that she's feeling, she's like, all right, what I'm experiencing is not Mark Twain. This shadow is evil. It's not, you know. God. Yeah, it's not, unless, I mean, he has something to settle with her, but who knows. And then this, Carrie, you're going, like, when I read this, I was like, oh, fuck. Carrie is going to have a field day. So, a phantom shriveled up grape appeared in a clean dinner plate. Just randomly, they hadn't bought fresh fruit or anything lately. And it's just like, plop, right there in the middle of a dinner plate. So, a raisin? Basically. and But what she said, she was like, it's a sign, it's a sign from the other side. Okay. And Fake. A, and apparently what she said, this was foreshadowing the foreskin of her death. Okay. Well, her attempts to understand exactly what was happening were really not going anywhere. And so she called in a psychic expert and a ghost hunter. His name is Hans Holzer. And she wanted him to help find some sort of peace, some sort of resolution. And most of you might know Holzer's name. He investigated the Amityville Horror and has written over like 140 books about paranormal and unexplained mysteries and phenomena. Phenomena. Which I really want to do in the Amityville Horror, but that'll be later. Because I feel like that's a really big one. Yeah. Well, when he got there, he confirmed what... Many had believed all along that it was haunted, and he said that there were at least 22 ghosts at this one location. He said, besides Mark Twain, it included something dead underneath the floorboards. He said that it was a spirit of a young girl with curly hair, blue eyes, and a tiny nose who had been buried underneath the house. Javane? <laughs> Damn. That's really foreshadowing the foreskin. Mm-hmm. The aborted baby. No, oh, why do we have to keep going I know, that? I know, I'm so sorry. A spectral gray cat. And then he also identified a terrifying, overwhelming negative energy. Oh, and he said, of course, there's Civil War ghosts here too. They interviewed some other tenants and stuff, and they said they also saw shadow figures and ghosts in the halls, up the stairs, All of the above. Well, when they are doing another session, they got a medium in there. And the medium snapped into a trance and was basically possessed and started talking in a voice that wasn't their own. And when asked, they said that they were Rennie Mallison, a 19-year-old girl who was born in 1848. And she blamed President Lincoln for killing her husband, Henry McDermott, 
by making him fight in the Civil War. And then she started sobbing over oh a child gosh. that she lost. Oh, no. Yes. And so they thought maybe that was the... Miscarriage. Yes, miscarriage. After this, the paranormal expert, a.k.a. Holzer, had had enough. And so he's like, leave, go, bye-bye, shoo-shoo. And he was like, the Bartels are the rightful occupants. You know, go and leave these people in peace. And then the medium's voice shot back and said, never. I will never leave here. They will have to go. This is my house. I will never leave. Damn. Yep. Well, in the end, Holzer was unable to silence, unable to rid the spirits, and... She couldn't find peace on her own. It was just like adding to this anxiety-riddled person, which added to their tumultuous relationship. It, You know, it was not good for anyone. After that, the Bartels did not feel safe, and they moved away. They had endured 12 years of terror. Shit. So they left, got a new house, but the horror didn't stop. She claimed that the house had poisoned her and the evil spirit had attached itself to her. And so, 1973, she died under mysterious circumstances. Some say it was possible suicide, and then other people said that it was a heart attack. Hmm. But this was right after she finished the manuscript of the book about the house. Hmm. So, friends pulled the pages together and had it published the following year under the title Spindrift, Spray from a Psychic Sea. I mean, again. That sounds like a fucking porn. <laughs> I mean, maybe. Maybe it was. <laughs> when she died, she was 51 years old. Here's a piece from, like, you know, the inside jacket that mm-hmm. gets you, like, tenilated. It says... <laughs> I love when I read shit like this because I know you're like, what the fuck? Pretty much, yeah. All right. Like a game of ten little Indians, death began to occur in the house. The first to die was a dog, Jan's own beloved Penelope. But within 24 hours, she was to learn of the death of the first human tenant. Whether by a heart attack, suicide, or murder, the deaths came in rapid succession. In terror... With nine little Indians gone, the Bartels moved far away from Greenwich Village, but the haunting followed them. After the completion of Spindrift, Jane Bartell became the tenth. What in the <laughs> fuckery fuck is that? <sighs> I mean, it's Spindrift from the psychic sea. Spew from the spray from the psychic sea. What in the actual fuck does the ten little Native <laughs> Americans have to do with shit? don't know that's the dumbest shit i've ever heard i know like i like i really pictured you picking up this thing one you wouldn't have picked it up based on the title no i've been like what i don't even know what those words are (laughs) but if you picked it up and on the jacket you're like okay what is this wait what that's like a fucking tongue twister six slivers at least what's the the tongue twister peter piper picked a pack of pickle pipers yes (laughs) how many six slivers can she slide (laughs) the fuck Oh, God. All right. The next tenant I'm going to talk about is Joel Steinberg. He is a lawyer. He had a girlfriend named Hedda Nospum. 
I think. She was an editor of children's books at Random House. Looking in from the outside, you're like, wow, they are put together. They are so successful. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, what you aspire to be. Like, hashtag goals, living in this brownstone, loving each other, whatever. Well, they adopted two children, six-year-old Lisa and an 18-month-old Mitchell. But all of that came crumbling down. The facade broke away, and November 2nd, 1987, shit happened, and it revealed that really what was in that brownstone was a drug den (gasps) of abuse and terror. All right, picture it. Joel and Hedda are freebasing cocaine. Holy fuck. Yes. That took a turn. Yes. And so then Joel, he hit Lisa and then continued to beat on her. And then they left her unconscious on the floor. Hedda went into another room and Joel went out to meet friends. Why even adopt? Like, you made that decision. Yeah. Oh, just wait. Well, Joel returned home and he and Hedda freebased some more cocaine till around 4 a.m. And Lisa's still just laying there. God. It wasn't until 6.30 a.m. that Hedda finally called the authorities. And when police arrived, it was just like, you know, you walk into this brownstone and then you walk into this home and it's in disarray and gross and Hedda answered the door. Her face was all bruised and her lip was split open. Oh, my God. And she kind of just, like, hid behind doors when the medics were there Mm -hmm. and stuff. They found Mitchell soaked in urine and covered with dirt. He was tied to a playpen (gasps) with a length of rope around his waist. Oh, my God. And, unfortunately, Lisa died three days later at the hospital. At the trial, his defense suggested that Hedda, all of these huge injuries, which included severe damage to the face and permanent spinal damage, which didn't limit her ability to walk or anything, but still there, that it all resulted from consensual sadomasochistic relationship between the two. And they said that Hedda was alone in the apartment with Lisa. She's a bleeding, unconscious, on the floor, for over 10 hours without seeking any medical attention for her. Well, Hedda's attorneys claim that she was scared of him, and all of this leads to battered woman syndrome. Well, Joel was convicted of first-degree manslaughter and served 16 years in prison. That's it? Yep. And the investigation revealed that he had never legally adopted either child. What? Yes. He had been hired by a single mother named Michelle Launders to locate a suitable adoptive family for Lisa. But instead, he was like, oh, we have a perfect home for you. And just kept her. Never filed the adoption papers, like anything. And same with Mitchell from a different parent. Just never did it. Wow. Yeah, so in the house, they said that they had discovered marijuana, cocaine, over 20 crack pipes, and $25,000 in cash at the apartment. Who has that kind of cash? 
Right? Who has that kind of savings? Who has that kind of money, period? Much less just in fucking cash laying around. I know. How Hedda was able to avoid conviction is because she turned on Joel and, you know, exchange for her testimony, she was given immunity like your other peeps. Mm -hmm. Well, he was released in 2004 and then he took up a job in construction. So now all of this has led to like the worst possible thing, like a real life monster living in this house. From a New York Times article in March of 1989, they said that that he was sentenced eight years to 25 years in state prison, and that was the maximum that he could have received, but the judge said that he would strongly recommend against parole, and while he's receiving this sentence, he did not show any sign of emotion except for kind of like slumping over when... They were reading it, just kind of like, eh, you know. Mm-hmm. And then before the sentence was imposed, he kind of, you know, s- like, sounded like a lawyer, a.k.a. Ted Bundy, addressed the bench. And they said he was kind of, like, clinical about it. He went over bits about the evidence presented at the trial, then, like, a monologue about Lisa's death and his role in her life, And by the end, his voice was kind of breaking, but he said that he felt no remorse because he had not caused her death. And he said, I feel this pain every day. It's my loss. I'm a victim, as was everyone else who knew Lisa. Which, fuck you. Yes. Fuck you. But some good news. The other adopted child, Mitchell, he was returned to his Long Island birth mom, Nicole. She named him Travis. And he went on to score straight A's graduate with honors from high school he played varsity soccer lacrosse he then went on to do college he got married and has a successful career in banking good for him yes one thing to note is that the house of death it also is kind of like all around the neighborhood in this complex people have noticed flickering lights they've noticed spectral forms going through walls And there's this one guy who says he's a photographer. He said that this ghost, a female, would float through the walls in his apartment and she would be wearing a long white dress and sometimes a gray cat was behind her. He's lived in this apartment for 20 years and he lives on the third floor in number 16. He said that the evil spirit, quote unquote, the dark soul has wandered over to his home. He said that during one of his photo shoots, model a model ran out after being scared by the ghost of the woman. And he was saying that walls don't stop them from doing anything. But let me just say, he's a quote-unquote photographer having photo shoots in his home, mm-hmm. in an apartment. Mm-hmm. Like, on, like, a top floor. Like, what? Mm-hmm. Mm-mm. That sounds sketch as fuck. Yeah, I don't think it was a ghost. Or maybe it was a ghost, and she was like, boo, get the fuck out of here, girl. Run. Yes, right. Like, what the fuck? He gonna kill you. Yes. Danger, we're Robinson, danger. <laughs> you in danger, girl. One thing that I thought was funny is, well, I mean, other than, like, most of this, one time he was with a girl, again, looking through books at a nearby bookstore, which is so New York to me. Like, every time I watch something, it's like, 
cool, trendy, like, hole-in-the-wall bookstores that have all of this stuff, and it's, like, the perfect date. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, I'm like, how do you say ling- languorous? <laughs> anyway, so they're walking through, and mysteriously, one book kind of pushes itself out and lands in the hands of this female that he's with. And it was the book, none other than Spindrift. No. Yes, by Jan Bartell. No. Yes, he said that over time he has bought numerous copies of the book, but every time it disappears without any reason, and so he's bought it like ten times. Yeah, Mark Twain's little fucking Templeton takes it. (laughs) It's the borrowers. I mean... They were talking about the Ten Little Indians. It's terrible. <laughs> I know, I know. Golly. Who says that? Well, I mean, I just did, but. <laughs> so, what everyone says is, yes, there is a darkness cast over this location. As many as 44 murders are said to have occurred there or in that neighborhood. And my final thoughts about this is, like, definitely, like, dot, 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 if these walls could talk. Like, we would actually know the truth. Yeah. Instead of her spindrift, flowery, like, whatever that she wrote, you know? And then Dennis, the quote-unquote photographer. Right. Like, mm, I don't know about that. So, yeah, that's the House of Death. And, I mean, it's on, like, New York tours and stuff like that. So, who knows? People said in that neighborhood there were a lot of literary people, even... Edgar Allan Poe, he lived there, again, in this neighborhood. I think he lived at number 18. And that was where he proposed to a woman, and she rejected him. And so they were like, this is where his heart was broken, and of course that's going to stick with him. And, you know, just like all of this in this area. Yeah. So don't judge a book by its cover. Even though you see these beautiful brownstones, you don't know what's inside. But if you want to, get Spindrift. Psychic Sea of whatever. But have Google handy for your thesaurus and for stuff. Real. Well, hell, you already did our what we learn. I know. Sorry. Well, I guess that's all, folks. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I learned? That sex sells, even when sex was immoral and mm-hmm. all of that shit. And shit hasn't changed at all. Women are still villainized way more than men. It talks about our looks because, oh my God, she's a beautiful woman. How could she ever do some, something like this? However, if it was hatchet face, there'd be like, she's a murderer. Mm-hmm. You know, gas her right now. And it's like, what the fuck? So basically, in both situations, just be leery of a facade. Yeah, totally. Because whether she did it or not, which I'm pretty sure she did. I mean, how the media portrayed her and all, was she was convicted before she even got there. Oh, for sure. And then with this house, for sure that couple, like, I can't even wrap my brain around that. Like, why would you even keep the kids if you don't, you know what I mean? I know, I know. Unless he, like, abused them or something, you know? Well, oh. I mean, it does sound like he abused them. No, I mean, sexually abused. Like, did he get them to sexually abuse them? Oh. I don't know. These were heavy stories, and it they weren't really... really put- that heavy, but they were. I don't know. I know. Well, we both wanted to do short stories because, you know, shit's been going on. And good Lord, we picked the, like, downers of the century. We sure did. Well, on this sad note, <laughs> remember. Creep it real. And, and don't, don't get, get scared. scared.